Okay, let's get started. Um, at this time, we would like to ask that everyone in attendance mute your microphones and stay muted throughout the meeting. Good evening and welcome to the Oklahoma City Tuesday Night Big Book Study Group. My name is Wendy Zimbridge and I am an alcoholic. Join me for a moment of silence followed by the set aside prayer, which is in chat. Dear God, please set aside everything I think I know about myself, this book, my illness, these steps, and especially about you, dear God, so that I might have an open mind and a new experience with all these things. Please help me to see the truth. Amen. Normally, this meeting is a big book study, and we would recommend that you have a big book in front of you to follow along. But tonight, we have a special historical presentation for you, so it's not necessarily going to you're not going to necessarily need one tonight. Please post in the chat section though if you need a book and a member will connect with you to make sure that you get one. We would like to remind you that AA is not affiliated with treatment centers, detention centers, or other facilities. The experiences shared in this meeting are not necessarily the opinions of this group or of Alcoholics Anonymous as a whole. We have, so oh, okay. So I'm going to skip that part. With respect to the seventh tradition, we are called to be self-supporting. As such, we suggest that you take an active role in supporting your district's area in your contribution directly. Out of respect, we ask that you stay muted throughout, do not post in the chat during the meeting, and be mindful of your activities if you're sharing your video with the group. Thank you. This is the AA preamble. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problems and help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. Does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any cause. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and to help others to achieve a sobriety. I have stated I am an alcoholic. Are there any other alcoholics present? Whoop, whoop, there they all are. Awesome. Um, tonight, we have a different format and Rick is going to, out of Florida, is going to be doing a presentation um, on the history of AA. So let's please welcome him um, warmly. Um, as we, we get to enjoy this special presentation. Rick. Thanks, Wendy. My name is Rick, I'm an alcoholic. So good to be with y'all tonight. I tip my imaginary hat to all of you for being students of the big book. That's amazing. It's, it's, it's just amazing. I don't have words for it. And I thank Cliff for making the invitation and, and extending me the trust to address y'all this evening with accurate information to try to lay a background for the upcoming restart of the big book study. Now, this is not going to be a museum tour. So uh, it's not gonna be uh, so much of that was that and this is this. It's not about who had freckles or red hair. It's about what the contributions were that brought us to where we're at today. And also a lot of us are visual learners. So this will give, give some memory posts uh, to some of the, the people that are referenced in the big book, that they were real people, you know, that this is not a, a novel. And 
it's it's designed to bring out the true heroes that brought about our textbook and what they contributed and what they brought to the table. Um, so we'll go ahead and get started with it. And uh, it's gonna fit the hour pretty close. So um, I wanna just let you be aware of that, but I'll try to save some time and answer questions at the end. Uh, and we'll go from there. Um, So bear with me. I'm an e-midget. And of course, this worked great whenever Mike and I were getting started. We'll see if we can get back to, uh, here we go. So what we're looking at here is a slideshow presentation of the history of Alcoholics Anonymous. I like to always start with the first edition, first printing of the big book. Without, the, without this article right here, none of us would be here. This is the veritable Ark of the Covenant, if you will, for Alcoholics and Alcoholics Anonymous. It's laid down uh, our experience in a, in a book form that can be objective and which we can always refer to as what the true program of recovery is. It was written by this gentleman, Bill Wilson, Bill W., I don't mind saying his last name because Bill was one of the greatest anonymity breakers the fellowship ever had. But as, as the founder and the writer of, of our textbook, uh, this is a picture that was um, that was in the Life magazine for the 100 most influential people in America over the last 100 years when the millennial came around. So Bill, make no mistake about it, he's the author of the textbook. In Bill's story, he talks about being in Winchester Cathedral. It was World War One. He's scared, and he wanders into this cathedral. And when you look at this picture, it's pretty awe-inspiring. It's it's an awe-inspiring place. And he felt the presence of God, uh, but he said it was soon blocked out by worldly clamors. And he walked outside, and he saw this tombstone, and it caught his eye. And it was about this man named. Ed or T-H-E-T-H-E-R, but it reminded him of Evie Thatcher, who was one of his old drinking pals. And so is that that's one of those moments where you say, is that odd or is that God? You know, it's not for us to discern, but it's, it's interesting to think about. But the, the key to the Hampshire Grenadier tombstone is this, that he caught his death drinking cold, small beer. And he's a soldier that drank himself to death. Now, keep in mind that this is in 1764, and they had not invented pitchers yet. So in, in pubs, they would set a pail of pail of ale or beer, what, you have, what have you, and they would dip from it. So whenever it says that an honest soldier has never forgot whether he dies by musket or by pot, he's not talking about he smoked himself to death. And this is no breach of singleness of purpose. It's just the fact that at that time they did not have pictures. But anyway, Bill said that uh, is an ominous warning that he failed to heed. This is his brother-in-law, Dr. Leonard Strong, 
Dr. Lyndon Strong is very important to us in AA history because one, he helped kid, keep Bill alive to be able to get sober and to write our textbook and be a co-founder. Uh, he paid his way into Towns Hospital for detox on three different occasions. Then later on, Leonard Strong helped broker a meeting with the Rockefeller Foundation that gave us some integral parts to get a general service office set up. And he volunteered his time and his talents as one of the very first non-alcoholic trustees of Alcoholics Anonymous, who was married to Bill's sister, tremendous contributor to AA history. This next gentleman is the doctor of the doctor's opinion. This is Dr. William D. Silkworth. They called him Silky, the little doctor that loved drunks. And Dr. Silkworth was trained as a neurologist. He, he studied brain functions. But when the depression and the stock market crash came, he found himself, he lost all of his money. He was gonna have his own hospital uh, regarding neurology, the functions of the brain. But instead he wound up taking a job at a, um, at a rehabilitation place, we'll call it nicely without all the slangs like spin dry or jitter joint or anything like that. We won't call it that. It was Towns Hospital for Rehabilitation. And Dr. Silkworth, he's tremendous as a contributor to AA history because he gave us his opinion that he felt like there was something physically different with alcoholics that set us aside as a different type of drinker. And this is really great news even to this day because it takes some of the morality off of alcoholism. A lot of men and women come to AA filled with shame and guilt and remorse. And so whenever the doctor's opinion is read and studied, it comes out that this is not necessarily an exclusively moral issue, that there's some physiology involved in the functions of the brains of the alcoholics. Uh, it works different than for other people. My sponsor, Charlie P., Charlie Parmley, he traveled the world teaching the big book as, as his half of the Joe and Charlie big book study. He used to love to tell the story about there's a person came to a neurologist that had pioneered brain transplants and he had plenty of money and was in good health, but he had to have a, uh, a brain transplant. So he looked at these different ones that were in these aquariums and one was the brain of a famous attorney. Another one was the brain of a uh, a great physician and he had plenty of money for all those. And there was one in the corner and he said, what about that one, doc? He said, oh, that was the most expensive one we have. Uh, it, it runs $100,000. And he said, well, what's so special about it, that brain? He said, well, it's the brain of an alcoholic. It's never been used. And that's why it's so expensive. Anyway, Dr. Silkworth, neurology, taking the, uh, the stigma of the morality off. Tremendous, tremendous contributor to Alcoholics Anonymous. This is a picture of Towns Hospital in New York. Towns Hospital is uh, where Silkworth practiced and where Bill went uh, for rehabilitation, for drying out, detox, whatever you'd like to call it, on three different occasions. Some say four, it doesn't matter, potato, potato, uh, Towns Hospital. Now, this is not some slum area. This is right across the street from Central Park. This is a well-to-do hospital. This is not um, any, any, any kind of a, um, of a uh, second-class place whatsoever. There were people that came from Europe that had titles with their names to go through their, uh, their detox process there. And um, so it, it was 
the place where Bill made his start. And Towns Hospital was owned by this gentleman. This is Charles Towns. He was from he was from Georgia, a country boy. He was not a doctor, but he had a passion for addictions in general. And he formed this, this detox hospital uh, in New York City. And he was a very big student of uh, obsessive behaviors and compulsions regarding substance abuse in general. He was so well thought of that the United States government funded him going uh, to China to help them with their opioid addiction problem in exchange for how poorly we treated their people that helped us build the Transcontinental Railroad. So Charles Towns, although he was not a doctor, he was very well thought of and his hospital had a lot of prestige attached to it. Now Towns Hospital, I'm gonna go back to Charles for just a second. Another miracle that happened with Charles Towns is he had a strong, a, a written in stone policy at his hospital that once you um, completed your program of detox there, you were not to come back. That the only way you got to come back on the premises is go through admissions and pay a fee so you could be a patient there again. There was no alumni association. There was no after scare or anything like that. And when Bill Wilson came along and had his experience there, he's the only one that Towns ever gave the authorization to come back as an alumni and carry his message of hope to the patients there. He never allowed that before. And he also loaned us money to get our big book published whenever we were hard pressed to come up with the money to get the big book published later. So he was instrumental also in uh, getting our book published as well. So he's a great contributor to AA history. Charles Towns of Towns Hospital. Now this is Knickerbocker Hospital in New York as well. And this is where Dr. Silkworth finished up his practice after he left Towns Hospital. And he had a redheaded nurse named Teddy that was uh, an AA member and they treated many, many, many alcoholics there and helped them to get their physical detox out of the way and, uh, and make their beginning for AA. This man's name is Seaver Graves. He was a member of the Oxford group, the men's squadron. And Sebra went along with this other gentleman here uh, in this slide on the far left. Uh, this gentleman right here is Roland Hazard. And Roland Hazard is the man that's uh, talked about in the chapter, There is a Solution, about going to uh, be treated by Dr. Carl Jung. And so these two gentlemen, Sebra Graves and Roland Hazard, went before the judge whenever Abby Thatcher had crashed the Packard into a woman's house, wound up in the kitchen, drunk one morning, and his response to her while she was aghast was, uh, may I have a cup of coffee? And so Abby is before the judge about to get committed for alcoholic insanity. And so Seber Graves and Roland Hazard went before the judge and pleaded his case that if the judge would release him to their custody. They would, they would get him out of Vermont. <laughs> They'd take him back up to New York with them and try to be helpful with getting him started on rehabilitation. Now, it did not hurt that Seaver Graves' father was the judge sitting on the bench. <laughs> so um, 
he agreed to that. And that's how Abby was saved from being locked up for alcoholic insanity. And they took him along with another Oxford group member named Shep Cornell, um, eventually up to New York City to the Oxford group's rescue mission that they were uh, in joint venture with, with uh, the Riverside uh, uh, Church, Episcopal Church, Calvary Episcopal Church. And um, that's how Abby got his start was being saved. So whenever you say, and Bill's story talks about the last I heard, he was getting locked up for alcoholic insanity. These are the two gentlemen that intervened. Now, Roland is the one that was treated by Dr. Carl Jung, the celebrated physician, I believe he's referred to in our textbook. And Carl Jung was a tremendous contributor to AA even before AA ever came about because um, he treated Roland for a year. He was in, in treatment in Zurich, Switzerland for a year. And before he even made it back to the States, Roland got drunk and he went back to Carl Jung and said, hey, you know, is what's going on? I've had the best of help, you know, that money could buy from psychiatry. And Carl Jung believed that there was what was required was an entire psychic change. The casting of side of the old ideas, attitudes, and emotions that were driving forces and replaced with a new set. He was talking about surrender and the psychic change or a spiritual awakening. Of the leading psychiatrists of the day, Sigmund Freud, Carl Adler, and Carl Jung. Jung was the only one that believed in God. And so that was another one of those moments in time where AA was served by a miracle that Roland, who will later uh, be a 12th stepper through the Oxford groups, would carry this message from Carl Jung that the psychic change had to be brought about and that it was more than just simply psychology. Carl Jung in one of his more famous writings talks about in the modern man in search of a soul, that it's really the disconnect between the conscious separation from God on self-will that leads us down uh, this path for people that have the allergy to be alcoholics. This gentleman is Frank Buckman. Frank Buckman was a minister and he was the founder of the Oxford groups and he was an evangelist and he had a knack for bringing, bringing people to what they called a, a conversion experience. Now that sounds a little churchy and he was a minister, but what conversion experience means in AA jargon is to move from self-will to God's will be done in our lives. Like the third step, making that decision to turn our will and lives over the care of God. Frank Buckman was, uh, he was a methodologist. He used methods to bring about these, these conversion experiences. And he had the daily plan of action to go along with that Bill borrowed heavily from for what eventually became the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Frank Buckman was his right arm man in America was this gentleman, Samuel Moore Shoemaker. And Sam Shoemaker was the rector of the Calvary Episcopal Church in New York City. Bill freely, freely gave credit to Sam Shoemaker for teaching him the principles that evolved into the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. He's one of the unsung heroes of AA. So from the religious point of view, they were providing a, a method, if you will, or steps 
to bring about this psychic change that Carl Jung had talked about, but he didn't have the ability to bring it back, bring it about through counseling. And so Sam Shoemaker's church, the Calvary Episcopal Church in New York, really nice facility. And they had a heart for drums, but not so much that they wanted us in their really nice church. So what they did was they formed a rescue mission in the Bowery. And so they were helping down and out Bowery bombs with their rescue mission. And that's where Roland Hazard and Shep Cornell and Sieber Graves brought Abby Thatcher to dry out and make his start for sobriety. And so that's where Abby was, was at the Bowery Rescue Mission that was sponsored with by the funds from the Calvary Episcopal Church and the Oxford groups. Now here on the right, that's Abby Thatcher, Edwin Throckmorton Thatcher, <laughs> and Bill on the left. Abby's quandary was that he came from a, a very influential family in Albany, New York. His grandfather, his uncle, as well as his brother, had all been mayors of the city of Albany, New York, which is the capital of New York State. And they had a foundry business, and Ebby drank his way completely out of the family business, and he wound up in the, in the Bowery of New York City, and he still had a sense of entitlement. So one of Ebby's biggest struggles all through his life was, quite honestly, he was a snob with no money. And that's a bad place to be, <laughs> to have a snobbish attitude, but no money. And so Bill always gave Ebby the credit for being his sponsor and being the man that carried the message to him. Even though Ebby was unable to maintain continuous sobriety, he did die sober. And he brought uh, to AA many different things regarding uh, reaching out to others and carrying the message. And also not to give up on people that didn't that had slips because Ebby, he struggled throughout his life, but he was always there. And to his credit, he always kept coming back. And um, he was the man who brought the message to Bill. If you have further inquiries about or curiosity about Ebby Thatcher, Mel Barger wrote a really good book about a biography of Ebby Thatcher. And um he made a point at the end of the book to say, we get all carried away with sobriety countdowns and hoorah, hoorah, and who's got the most days, years, decades without a drink. But we can't use that to minimize the people that struggled so hard to put together a length of sobriety. And it's not about, uh, it's not an attendance matter. It's about a matter of life and death. So we always have to temper the hoorah, hoorah about who's got the longest time along with remembering that the tree of AA is watered with the blood of the people that could not get sober and stay that way. Now back to Bill's story. He's in Akron, Ohio. They're going to try to do a hostile business takeover. He's at the Mayflower hotel. The business takeover, the proxy fight went poorly. They were broke and discredited and Bill was walking in the lobby of the Mayflower Hotel. You see the bar in the background. Bill said, I heard the, the tinkling of the glass and, and the ice and the glasses, the laughter. And he's thinking, maybe I can go in and drink ginger ale. <laughs> but he has a awakening moment where he says, I don't go to bars to make friends. I go to bars to get drunk. 
And so instead of going in the bar and trying to scrape an acquaintance and, and delude himself that he's going to drink soft drinks at the gin mill, he instead goes to the church directory and he looks up this gentleman. This is Reverend Walter Tunks, and he was the rector of the Episcopal Church in Akron. So you see the connection, Sam Shoemaker, Episcopal Church, New York, Oxford Groups. He calls Tunks and said, you know, I'm a rum hound from New York and I need to speak. Are there any Oxford Group uh, meetings or members here? I, I really need to talk to an alcoholic. Tunks says, oh, yeah, we got the Oxford Group here. They came uh, back in 1933 and there's some remnants that are still staying. Some meetings that are still being held um, in this picture. You see this gentleman standing here on the left. That's Bud Firestone, the Firestone family, right? Firestone Tires. And his family was so thrilled that this seated gentleman, Frank Buckman of the Oxford Groups, and his crew were able to help um, Bud with his alcoholism, that they sponsored a week-long what they called Dinner Jacket Revival that went on in Akron, Ohio in, 19, in January of 1933. And... After they left, they still continued to have Oxford group meetings. And so Tunk says, yes, we've got Oxford group meetings and you need to speak to this lady. Her name is Henrietta Cyberling. Call her up. And so he calls Henrietta. And Henrietta has red hair and she's very persistent. She's not an alcoholic. But Dr. Bob later on referred to her as Little Red Hen because Henrietta kept pecking at him about you need to have God remove this obsession to drink. And so Henrietta was an advocate for the Oxford groups, even though she was not an alcoholic. And she lived in this little modest gatehouse, if you will, at the Cyberling Estate, which is a really big sprawling estate. And she was estranged from her husband and she and the kids were living there. And that's where she makes the call to her friend, Ann Smith from the Oxford groups. And this is Anne on the left and her husband, Dr. Bob Smith on the right and says, Anne, you've got to get Dr. Bob over here. I talked to a guy from New York, from the Oxford groups there. He's sober. He found a, a way out from alcoholism and, um, and hemmed and hawed. And, and finally, and of course, Henrietta, little red hen kept pecking at her. And she said, okay, look, he's came home for Mother's Day with a potted plant and he's potted too. So he's in no shape to come over and visit. We'll come tomorrow, I promise. So the next day, Anne loads Dr. Bob, they get together in the car and Dr. Bob says, I'll give this bird about 15 minutes of my time just to be respectful of Henrietta. And I know she's prayed long and hard for us. And just out of respect for her, I'll give him 15 minutes of, our, of my time. Now here's a little, uh, Trivia note, Dr. Bob loved wild hand-painted ties. <laughs> he was all about hand-painted ties. And he also had some tattoos on his forearms. You never see him with his arms uncovered. But Dr. Bob, he had a little bit of a, with uh, the tattoos and the uh, hand-painted ties. Well, they go to Henrietta's. And instead of talking for 15 minutes, they talked for hours. And whenever that meeting was over with, they emerged and Dr. Bob told his wife, Ann, this is the first person that I've ever talked to that really understands the booze racket. And this is where Bill gave Dr. Bob 
the doctor's opinion. He didn't talk to him about Oxford Group. He didn't talk to him about all the readings and the Christian conversion experience. He gave him the doctor's opinion. And Dr. Bob made identification with that, that there was a physical difference in the way his body processed alcohol from other people's. And that was the beginning of a friendship that lasted until Dr. Bob's death. Bob and Ann had Bill come to their house. This is on Ardmore Avenue in Akron, Ohio. Today, Dr. Bob's house is a national, um, it is a national treasure. It's on the National Historical Register, uh, but there's no funds that are available with that designation. They don't have to pay taxes, but there were a group of alcoholics, anonymous members that formed a trust fund called the Founders Trust Fund that uh, through donations outside of AA um, provided funds for the upkeep, the, the renovations and upkeep for Dr. Bob's house, as well as the Wilson Inn in Dorset, Vermont. Another thing to notice before we move from this picture is you see a drain spot, a drain spout over here on, on the side here and a window upstairs. And the story was that one of their early prospects, Ernie G., they heard a commotion going on. They had him upstairs drying out, detoxing. And whenever they went to check it out, Ernie was trying to shinny down the drain pipe so he could get down the street and find a bottle and, and find a drink. You can imagine how thrilled Dr. Bob was when Ernie G. wound up marrying later on Dr. Bob's daughter, uh, Sue. Uh, they had a really rocky relationship, to say the least. But nonetheless, Dr. Bob's house, it's sure worth a visit if you're anywhere close to Akron. And this is where the, the initial um, formation of AA started with Dr. Bob's sobriety date. He practiced medicine in the city hospital of Akron. Dr. Bob was a surgeon. He was a proctologist and a rectal surgeon. I'm not sure, but I think that kind of background is what made him such a terrific sponsor because he was used to dealing with us. Um, that's a little, thank you, Wendy. <laughs> I'm glad you got that. So, but nonetheless, uh, that's where he called and asked for the man that turned out to be AA number three to be placed in a private room. And this is a watercolor of the man on the bed where the two sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous reach out to the man that's still suffering that's that's on the man on the bed and this watercolor, uh, an AA member did it many years ago. And it depicts the core of Alcoholics Anonymous is carrying the message to those that still suffer. This is Sister Mary Ignatia. She was a Catholic nun in Akron that started out as a musician and as a musical teacher. And she was a workaholic. She was not an alcoholic. And Sister Mary Ignatia, uh, she had a bit of a work-related breakdown because there was a new supervisor came to her area and wanted her to change the way and some of her techniques of teaching the music for the church. And she wound up having to take a time out and take some therapy and get herself pulled together. And whenever she completed her treatment and was about to be released, the therapist said, you can leave here a live nun or a dead music teacher. She said, what do you mean? He said, I'm not telling you not to be a nun, but I'm telling you that you're not going to be able to maintain your, your sanity with your perfectionism trying to be a music teacher. 
another watershed moment for Alcoholics Anonymous. She instead went into hospital administration and she was the administrator for the Sisters of Mercy Charity Hospital. And at this time, no one in the hospital business wanted drunks to be admitted under the diagnosis of alcoholism. There were two main reasons. Number one, there's very little hope they could do anything for us. And number two, we tended to not pay our bill. So it was really hard. You know, sometimes a doctor would admit someone for detox under a bogus diagnosis like gastritis or the jitters or what have you. But Sister Ignatia was the very first one that allowed Dr. Bob to admit patients for detox that were alcoholics. Another part of her unsung hero uh, status for Alcoholics Anonymous is when the drunks would complete the detox at the center that she operated there, she would give them one of these scapulars. And this one's encased in plastic, but they're, they're on wool. So they're designed to be itchy <laughs> as a reminder. And it was the birth and the beginning of the chip system or tokens of sobriety. And when they would leave there and graduate, she'd say, take this with you. And if you ever decide you want to drink again, all I ask is you bring it back to me first before you take that first drink and, and return it. And, and of course, the method to the madness was she could look at him and say, Tommy, have you lost your mind? You've, you've forgotten what you were like whenever you came here, the shape you were in. And she'd get one more shot at him uh, before they would, um, you know, if they were willing to bring that scapular back. But it's a token of sobriety and a reminder of dedication to a cause. Now, this is Sisters of Charity Catholic Hospital there in Akron. Now we have... T. Henry and Clarice Williams. This picture is important in AA history because they opened their home and dedicated it to Oxford group meetings. They kept the Oxford group meetings happening from 1933 when Buckman and the Dinner Jacket Revival left up until Bill got there in 1935. For two years, they had all of these people coming to their house and spirituality seekers. They weren't focused on alcoholism, just people trying to have spiritual growth and get focused on what they considered to be first century Christianity. Now here's one of those, is that odd or is that God moments? The company that T. Henry uh, Williams worked for was the very, he was an executive at, was the very company that Bill Wilson and his crew came to try to have the hostile stock take over. And had they been successful, then T. Henry would have probably lost his house, his home, his job, and not been able to provide the, 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 uh, the safe place to keep the Oxford group meetings going on. So can you see how the synchronicity starts to come into play here and all of these uh, coincidences, if you will, uh, fell into place and T. Henry and Clarice offering their home, uh, as gratitude for the Oxford groups and keeping those available until Bob and Bill could meet up there. Just phenomenal. This book is called, What is the Oxford Group? It was written anonymously about what the Oxford groups were about. And in its table of contents, the first chapter, the Oxford group, it's a good thing they don't have plagiarism laws back then the way we do right now, because there's a lot of cut and paste that came from this book to the AA program. In that chapter of the Oxford group, it says things like, there are no dues or fees. 
you remember if you say you are. There's no hierarchy. There's no, uh, the Oxford Group does not own property. There's no prestige involved. And so a lot of the AA preamble came out of that. They called it sin. The alcoholics later softened it to defects of character. That's just like us, isn't it? Sin, that's a little bit harsh. Let's go for defects of character. Sharing for two reasons. Confession, which was normally done in private, and witness, which was done publicly. Okay? Now, keep in mind, they're not focused on alcohol at whatsoever. Surrender. So they're not surrendering to alcohol. You know, alcohol was my master. I Surrendering self-will to God's will. Restitution. Sounds a whole lot like steps eight and nine, right? Made a list and they made direct amends. Surrender sounds a whole lot like step three. Made a decision to turn our will and lives and care over. Guidance. They, they had a chapter about guidance, which sounds a whole lot like step 11, sought through prayer and meditation. And part of their guidance was they had listening and then they'd have checking. And you would check with someone else that was spiritually fit or a little further down the spiritual path to make sure you weren't delusional about what you thought that God told you in your morning meditation. Uh, the old man Clancy out in California used to say, you need to be real careful if, uh, if you think you hear the voice of God, because most people that hear voices are nuts, you know, <laughs> in psychiatry terms. But they asked for guidance. And then they had the four absolutes, absolute honesty, purity, unselfishness, and love. Now, can you imagine you're an edgy alcoholic trying to get sober and going to these meetings and they spring this on you? I bet the drunks go in there said, what an order. I can't go through with it. Are you kidding me? Absolute honesty, purity, unselfishness, and love. But as you recommend, if you want to look into the essence of Alcoholics Anonymous and the steps, this book is a treasure trove. It talks about you do the in, inside work first. Honesty and purity are inside work. And once we get that work started, only then can we look at the other two absolutes and externalize them, which is unselfishness and love. It's not possible to be unselfish and loving if we haven't acquired the honesty and the purity. And the purity is not about our complexion. It means our thought life. Early AAs converted that into slogans like stinking thinking leads to drinking and such as that. So there's a sequence and a program of action that's laid out in the What is the Oxford Group book, which was basically their methodology that they used. There are a couple of Oxford Group books that are important uh, to the formation of AA. One was called For Sinners Only, and it was written by A.J. Russell. He was a newspaper man over, originally over in England. And he was our journalism, uh, the journalism guy for the Oxford groups. And then there was also, I was a pagan. And this guy named Kitchen talks about all of the different higher powers he ran through. He was a drunk that would not solve alcoholism. So it was not the higher power. It's not, it can be any higher power that you want because he tried the higher power of prestige. He had the higher power of having a trophy spouse on his arm a great big diploma mounted, you know, behind his desk at his work. But whenever the story concludes, he had to reach out to a higher power that was actually a deity that had a power greater than self that could restore the sanity regarding drinking. 
I'm not really an emo, but this, this slide almost makes me cry. And I'll tell you why. There's been for a long, long time, even since biblical times, whenever it made reference to those that tarry long at the wine, there's been efforts to try to help us alcoholics. Silkworth represents medicine. Medicine alone had not been able to do much for us as alcoholics. Dr. Carl Jung, Silkworth knew that there was a physical angle to this thing, an allergic reaction, if you will, an allergy, but he didn't know the solution. Now, next we have Carl Jung. Carl Jung, he knew the solution, the psychic change, the spiritual awakening. But the problem was he was halfway around the world from Silkworth and they couldn't collaborate and share with each other about the medical aspects and the mental aspects and the spiritual awakening. But he brought psychology to the table. Now here's Frank Buckman. He's the minister, the evangelist. And he doesn't know squat about the physical aspects of alcoholism like Silkworth does. He is not a counselor or a psychologist about the psyche, but he is a he is a a winner. He is a a torchbearer for the techniques involved to bring a, a hard-headed person to a surrender of self-will to God's will. So here we go. Medicine alone, not much influence. Psychology alone, they hadn't had much influence about counseling alcoholics sober. Religion alone, some people got sober through the church, many did not. But the miracle that happened is when Bill Wilson became a crucible, if you will, a melting pot to bring together these three disciplines of medicine, psychology, and religion in what came to be our textbook and our program of recovery of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's a modern miracle. I can assure you of that for those three uh, disciplines to be brought together. And when our book was finally published, it was published in, with this kind of a dust jacket. They called it the circus jacket. When you look at it closely, it's an oxymoron. <laughs> it's not about anonymity at all. It's designed to sell books. There's nothing anonymous about this dust jacket whatsoever. It's a promotion, right? And it was written in this office, the William Street office in New Jersey, um, that belonged to Hank Parkhurst, Bill Sponsey. And here's Bill in his accustomed writing style with his feet kicked back up on the desk with his Argyle socks and his Viceroy's or Chesterfield's laying on the, on the desktop, which later in life killed him. But uh, this is where he would write the chapters that became the textbook. And whenever he would write one, then Nell Wing would, um, and uh, Ruth Hawk, pardon me, Ruth Hawk, this is Ruth. She would type them up and then they would distribute them to the New York members and then they would send a copy out to Akron. And then they had editorial by committee. Now this made Bill nuts. He did not like editorial by committee. He wanted some input, but if you've ever had a friend that's an artisan of any sort, whether they're an oil painter, a glass blower, any type of artist, they do not respond well to criticism of their work. <laughs> and so Bill was, he was receiving all this pushback 
And finally, whenever they got up into how it works, Bill just said, I've had enough. I'm not going to accept any more editorial by committee. You either leave me alone and let me write the book and finish the book in the writing style that I'm using, or I'm not going to finish the book and, and someone else can, can do it. And they said, okay, 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 Bill, okay. And so they backed away from this editorial by committee and Bill got to finish the work in the same writing style that he had done all along. Now in the forward to the first edition, the red book, there's something very important on the forward. If you notice here, precisely how we've recovered is in all caps and it's designed to jump off the page, right? And so this was important to us historically because the fellowship hadn't got a hold of this and started any type of slogans like take what you want and leave the rest or anything else like that. It was meant to be a hope statement saying you don't have to wait for a vaccine. This is precisely how we've recovered. This is the missing link. This is the methodology that will bring about sobriety, freedom from alcohol through the teaching and practice of the 12 steps. Now, another part of the, all of the first edition books, there were 16 printings and Cliff will tell you all about those. But in the 16 first edition printings, when the different editions meant first edition, but printings, when they sold out a batch, they would reorder from the printer. But all 16 of them, Silkworth's name did not appear on the doctor's opinion. But we received this very prestigious award called the Alaska Award from the American Public Health Association presented to Alcoholics Anonymous for pioneering work in the age-old problem of alcoholism. And this was a big deal. And after we had received that, Silkworth capitulated and said, I'll tell you what, fellas, it's okay for you to put my name on the doctor's opinion now. I'll own that, all right? But up to that point, the detractors felt like maybe it was some quack that we hired to try to endorse us with the doctor's opinion. But this really brought about a lot of legitimacy to the doctor's opinion regarding Alcoholics Anonymous. This is in the first edition, first printing, the Red Book. And it's the only time any of the words have ever been changed in the book Alcoholics Anonymous on the steps. And in step 12, it said, having had a spiritual experience as a result of these steps. And people were writing into the general service office and saying, I must not be doing it right. I've not had the burning bush. I haven't had the white light. Uh, I haven't had that hot flash experience that Bill described in his hospital stay whenever the cool wind, the cool breeze blew through. And Bill realized he made a mistake in the wording. And so whenever they ordered a new batch of books, the second printing of the first edition, it came back with having had a spiritual awakening. And then the appendix in the back of the book, spiritual awakening appendix came about. The point I like to always make here is that never, never ever in all the history of Alcoholics Anonymous has it said having had a spiritual experience or awakening as a result of these meetings. It's always been as a result of these steps. So that is the pathway. That is the treasure map that we follow as the result of the steps. The book started changing size and color. The, only the first printing was red. This little small one on the right was the wartime edition that came out where the paper was on ration. and They had to change the size of the book, but they kept the font the same and the page numbers uh, were the same after uh, through the first edition, 
Now, here's a little note for you, and it's really important on AA history. All of the first edition big books, page number one is the doctor's opinion. It was always meant to be read first. Only when the second edition came out did they make chapter one, page one. And that was really a disservice for smart alcoholics like me that wanted to skip over all the warm-ups and go straight. But it was a bunch of acknowledgments and blah, 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 this and that. But the doctor's opinion originally was page one and always meant to be read first. And here's a little sampler of the different dust jackets as the book started to evolve. The first edition on the upper left, the second edition here with this dark blue jacket. Now, see, when the second edition came out in 1955, we were starting to get a little clue about anonymity. And on the back of the dust jacket in for this second edition book, it said, if you'd like to carry your book in public and would like to remain anonymous, this dust jacket's been designed to turn inside out. And when you do that and put it on inside out, it's just a plain dark blue wrapper. And it doesn't say anything about Alcoholics Anonymous on it whatsoever. Check this guy out. Pipe gritted in his teeth. You know, he just looks like an atheist to me, you know. And this is Jimmy Burwell, you know. And he's the one that pounded the table about God as we understood him. And he was really adamant about, uh, he was from New York area. And he was really adamant about, if we got to have this God stuff, at least it needs to be as we understood him. And that was another miracle in AA history to allow that generalized God as we understood him instead of dogma or things that were pressured upon people regarding religion. Now, as the story unfolds, Jimmy Burwell and his atheism wound up getting drunk and no one wanted to send him any money to get home from his sales route. And he had his own spiritual awakening saying, my God, even my own people, the drunks won't have anything to do with me. And so he had a conversion experience himself. And later on, he was a full, full on AA member regarding relying that God could do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, but a very important contributor for us about God as we understood him. This is Hank Parkhurst. He was Bill Sponsee that uh, Bill piled up into Hank's office and wrote the book. And, and Hank Parkhurst is another unsung hero of Alcoholics Anonymous because he was a power driving fundraiser. He was all committed to make sure and get the funds for the book to be printed and published. It's the depression, no one's got any money. But they need money, and, and Hank is doing his best to raise money to get the book uh, published. So what does a good alcoholic promoter do? <laughs> you go out and get a pad of stock certificates <laughs> that were sold for $25 a piece on Works Publishing Company, a company, a corporation that didn't exist, on a book that hadn't been written yet, <laughs> and charging $25 a copy. If that's not alcoholic thinking, I don't know what is. But the most important part of this slide is in red letters written across this stock certificate, it's written cancel. We bought back all these bogus shares of the interest in the big book so the fellowship itself could own the big book. Now, Hank got drunk and his, his shares were, were bought out as the book started to sell. But the big book has always been owned by Alcoholics Anonymous. Bill Wilson did receive royalties as the 
author for his authorship of the book, but the book itself is owned by AA. Now, this is an interesting point in AA history. Harper Brothers was going to offer to give us an advance on the book because they thought it was a really good book. And so Robert Exum met with Bill Wilson and said, yeah, we'll publish your book for you and we'll give you an advance on it, a cash advance on it. But you need to understand that, this, Bill. If we own the book as the publisher, we'll make whatever changes to it we see fit if we think it'll sell more books. And Bill was like, oh, that's a deal breaker. You know, I've already gone through this editorial by committee and this is my baby. It's a finished work. And I'm not about to let a publisher have ownership rights where they can change the content of my book. So instead, we just gutted it out and we were able to promote enough money to get the book published. And it turned out to be a 10 strike in AA history because general service has always been supported by literature sales and not by group contributions whatsoever. Literature sales has carried the mail, carried the bacon, so to speak, for the financial well-being of Alcoholics Anonymous. John D. Rockefeller Jr. The Rockefeller family were teetotalers. They were anti-alcohol. Dr. Leonard Strong has connections to some people that work for Rockefeller. They think it must be a natural. <coughs> they were able to get a, a, an audience with some of the Rockefeller men, and they're thinking, we're going to get money, you know, because we think we need to have a chain of hospitals, paid missionaries, and have this book published. Now, the miracle that happened for Alcoholics Anonymous is John D. Rockefeller, his job in life was a philanthropist to give away money to worthy causes. And we checked all the boxes. And so Bill and the crew, they're expecting to get an outpouring of funds from Rockefeller. But he had a moment of clarity and said, if we give them a bunch of money, it's going to mess this thing up. So instead of giving us money, he gave us brains and organizational skills. Frank Amos and on the right and Dick Richardson on the left. They put together the business structure that became the Office for General Service. And this became very important because Price Waterhouse was the accounting firm that took care of all the Rockefellers certified uh, accounting. And there was an uprising in Cleveland with this guy named Clarence S. that was slinging mud that Bill was ripping them off and, and pocketing all the book, book proceeds and this and that. And Bill showed up in Akron and in Cleveland with a certified audited statement of the finances of general service and, and the book sales. And that put that to rest. And so they set us up instead of giving us money, we gave us brain power. But Frank Amos here on the right, Rockefeller did put $5,000 or so in an account, a drawing account at Riverside Church where Frank Amos attended. And they used that money to take to to buy Dr. Bob and Ann Smith's house out of foreclosure and to give Bill a small monthly stipend for groceries until they could get the book finished. This picture was gifted to me from Frank Mauser. He retired as the archivist for GSO and it's not in circulation, but Frank gave this to me with almost tears in his eyes. And he said, Rick, this is the seventh tradition as good as it gets. These are checks written to John D. Rockefeller Jr. and Charles Towns, where we repaid the money that was loaned to us. 
at that time, and to the best of my knowledge to this day, AA is the only one that paid back the Rockefellers grant money. And in writing these checks, we let him know that we got the message and the principle of self-support through our own contributions. This is where the seventh tradition came about, that we're self-supporting through our own contributions. Now, groups are outgrowing homes, and so they started taking up residence in different commercial properties. Miramar College was in bad financial times, so they started renting out part of their college. And here on the left is restaurant and bar. <laughs> and this little building, building, this opening down here, was where the AA group went. So I, I guess every time you went to their group, you, started, you stood at the turning point, right? Or if you're in there whining, wondering whether or not you're alcoholic, they can invite you to the nearest bar to try some controlled drinking and check out Alcus Interruptus and see if you had the phenomenon of craving or not. But we started meeting outside of homes and started actually having clubhouses and all. This is the 52nd Street Clubhouse in New York City. It's set off from the street and it had a long hallway called, they called it the last mile to get back to the meeting room. And it was the last mile you would ever have to walk alone. And Bill and Lois were still homeless at this time and they're living upstairs in this little watercolor depiction of a, of a sleeping bedroom. And Bill was going through one of his depressions and Tex, who was the club manager, Rouse Bill, he said, Bill, you know, there's someone here to see you. And uh, it was a slee, stormy day. And Bill said, well, send him on up. And he hears a clump, 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 staggering up the steps. And, he, and Bill's in his contempt prior to investigation, thinks, oh, great, a wet drunk. This is just what I need. Uh-huh. Well, when, instead of being a wet drunk, it was this gentleman, Father Ed Dowling. He was a Jesuit priest that came out from St. Louis, Missouri to talk to Bill about, I read your book and I can't believe how amazing it is. You put the exercises of Ignatia that I learned in the Jesuit priesthood order school into understandable terms in your book. And the reason that he had trouble getting up the stairs because he had a handicap. He didn't walk well. And so instead of being a wet drunk stag staggering up the stairs, it became it turned out one of our greatest advocates in organized religion that AA has ever had before or since with Father Ed Dowling. One of Ed Dowling's favorite slogans, and he wasn't alcoholic, he used to say, if I ever get to heaven, it'll be from running away from hell. But that to the trials and tribulations that alcoholics had to face in order to embrace spirituality. Now it's 1945, June 10th, Dr. Bob's got He's having a 10-year anniversary, and so they have a gratitude banquet. And when you look over this picture that's published in the newspaper, you look out over the uh, audience, and all these napkins are up. It's like they're having a group sneeze or something. What it is is they're finally 10 years on figuring out about anonymity at the level of press, radio, and films. And so we've got Bill Dodson here, AA number three, on, on the left, Dr. Bob standing up addressing them. This is Lois here and, and Bill Wilson. But 10 years on, we finally started to get a little bit of clue about anonymity at the level of press, radio, and films. Remaking of a Man was an important book that came before the big book because it was from the Emanuel Movement. And they were in the Northeast part of the United States. And Courtney Baylor wrote this book about a layman's guide to trying to mentor alcoholics to sobriety 
and it had some really great information in it. And one of his protégés was named Richard Peabody. And for the Emanuel movement, Richard Peabody wrote this book, The Common Sense of Drinking. And it's a real good background uh, book about some of the mentality that leads to alcoholism. One of them is, I drank in high school to prepare for college. And, and the, the mentality of, of thrill-seeking. And Bill used a story from this book in the Emanuel Movement in our big book about the man of 30 that was doing spree drinking and he had quit for 25 years. And when he retired, out came the carpet slippers and the bottle and he wound up drinking himself to death. When you think about it, when the big book was written, we didn't have anybody 25 years sober. So he borrowed that story. And I'll say this in Bill's defense, and I'll try to coattail on it myself. Bill was not a historian, and he used his version of history at times to make the points that he wanted to make. So we don't want to get into legalism and nitpicking about what were the exact things or times and this and that. It's more about the principles. So don't get lost if you're a student of history trying to dot, cross your I's and dot the T's. It's about what the principle is. And we've known for a long time that the letter of the law kills. It's the spirit that gives the life. So in your studies of AA history, try not to get into minutia as much as discerning what the real principles are at play. Twice Born Men was a book that a lot of the Oxford group uh, members read. And it's a story. They're very moving stories about people that got sober in turn of the century England through the Salvation Army. And so these stories were so compelling about these individuals' personal stories, how they established relationship with God that got them sober. It's commonly referred to as one of the things that brought about the suggestion we have personal stories in the back of the book. Another book that was on Dr. Bob's required reading list for people he sponsored was The Greatest Thing in the World by Henry Drummond. This is a dissertation about 1 Corinthians. And the greatest thing in the world, of course, is love. And Henry Drummond had a really good way of explaining 1 Corinthians and what the love of God was about. And the alcoholics gravitated toward it. And it was one of the required reading lists. Another one was by James Allen, As a Man Thinketh. You know, it's your thoughts that manifest in the way your life comes out. So, you know, recall back on absolute purity. It's cleaning up our thought life because if we go around with nasty drinking thoughts, it's going to manifest in our lives. All action is born of thought. It may be fleeting, but this one on the required reading list, once again, of Dr. Bob, because he was a prolific reader and a big student. As a man thinketh, so does he become, and to manage your thought life as well. Emmett Fox, he was uh, a lecturer at the time, and he talked about the scientific way. The Sermon on the Mount dispelled a lot of what people thought were religious scars that they had growing up and everything. But the truth of the matter that Emmett Fox put out was, it's just a misunderstanding. You know, don't take the literal interpretation. Let's look at the, the scientific way or uh, this experiment with it. And there's another miracle that happened in AA history. About the turn of the century or the, in the 20s and 30s, there was this movement came up 
that was called experiential faith. Experiment. You know, kind of like they sold all those boxes. I'm going to show my age here. Those boxes of life cereal. It's Mikey. Try it. You'll like it. I don't like it. Try it. You'll like it. And so this movement came about, about experimental faith. And what they were saying is, here's a simple kit of spiritual tools. Try them out. If you don't like it, we'll refund all your misery. You know, and so AA came about at this terrific time where instead of being charged with blasphemy, they said, experiment with it and try it out. And once you've had your own experience, it'll be your very own. It won't be the preachers. It won't be grandma's. It will be your own. And so Ernest Ligon was one of the Oxford groupers that uh, books that was read called Psychology of Christian Personality. And he talked about the dynamic of fatherly love. He said, never mind this brotherly love stuff. If you've experienced sibling rivalries, you know that brotherly love is not the real deal. It's the love of the parent for the child is what we're looking for here. And he also talked about the salt of the earth uh, being used for personalities in three ways. One, as a preservative. You know, you could salt down hides and everything. Salt has a preservative. It also had to do with antiseptic. Put some salt in it and it worked as an antiseptic. And the third function was for flavor. If you've ever had boiled potatoes, no salt. You know, it's pretty bland, not really tasty. So Alcoholics Anonymous incorporated those three things about salt of the earth, saying, in working with others, be a preservative. Help others preserve their sobriety. And secondly, when you have new people come in or people that have got time that have, have lost their way, try to be an antiseptic for them. And thirdly, for flavor, keep in mind that if you oversalt a dish, it dominates it and takes it over and ruins the dish. So don't be somebody that overspeaks <laughs> and don't inject too much personality in the deal. Put just enough salt in there to give it some flavor, but not to dominate that. I think it should be part of, no, I'm giving an opinion. I think that should be a reading on open discussion meetings, but that's just me. This is William James. He's the father of American psychiatry. He wrote this book, Varieties of Religious Experience. Why is this important in AA history? Because when Ebby came back to the hospital and visited Bill, he gave him a copy of this book. And in this book, Bill found an exact description of what happened to him with the cool breeze, mountaintop, white light experience. And see, Bill and Silkworth weren't, weren't convinced that it wasn't a hallucination. You know, it could have been written off as DTs, delirium tremens or whatever. But whenever he saw it documented, his very own experience in this book by the famous American founder of American psychiatry and psychology, then Bill knew for sure it was real and it was no chance that it was some kind of a delirium tremen. Now, another sidebar, this is important in AA history because a lot of drunks come in here and we have trouble with insomnia. So if you're new and having trouble uh, sleeping, Get a copy of this and put it on your nightstand and read it. It will put you to sleep. It is very dry, clinical, and not a page turner. 
So if that one doesn't work, go for AA comes of age. Either one of those. Now, prayer and meditation. There were two Oxford group spinster ladies that were writing down and journaling what they thought God talked to them every morning. And they took their notes to A.J. Russell, who wrote uh, for Sinners Only, and he's the journalism guy for uh, the Oxford groups. And they said, can you do something with these? He said, you bet I can. So he organized them into a daily devotional diary, January 1st through December 31st, one page at a time. Uh, but it's written in first person, like this is God speaking. <laughs> and so it's like they, this is what they thought were the direct words of God to them. But he made this devotional diary. Richmond Walker got sober up in uh, the Northeast. And Richmond, he got sober in 1942. He had been an Oxford group member previously, but he drank and stayed drunk for a while. But he got sober again through AA in the very early 40s. And he realized God calling didn't have anything about alcoholism. So later in life, he put together this book called the 24-Hour-A-Day Book. And he self-published it down in Daytona, Florida. And what he did was he put an alcoholic paragraph as a leader. And then he did a condensed version of God calling for that day and tied them together at the bottom with a prayer for the day. And 24 hour a day was read by more alcoholics than any other devotional book ever published. Richmond tried to give it to GSO. They said, Richmond, it's a really great book, but it's so Judeo-Christian in its nature. We're afraid if we endorsed it or sold it, the people would think you had to be a Christian to get sober. And we all know that's not the case. But it's a really good book. It's not conference approved, but it is not conference disapproved. They did not disapprove of the book. They just felt like it might carry a message. You had to be Judeo-Christian in your religious leanings to make it an AA. Richmond said, okay, that's fine. He offered it to Hazleton Publishing Company for free. They snapped it up and have sold more copies of it than anything they've ever published in their entire history. So the point Richmond wanted to make is get the book in circulation because the demand was way far in advance of what he could self-publish working out of the basement of the library in Daytona Beach, Florida. 24-hour-a-day book. It's got our Oxford group roots. Jack Alexander, he's an article he writes an article, writes articles for the Saturday Evening Post. He was kind of the Geraldo Rivera of the day whenever he was, you know, the expose queen, you know, king. And they sent him out saying, we hear the Rockefellers have got money in this thing. I want you to go out and do investigative reporting and expose AA and we'll sell a bunch of magazines off of it. Well, he came to scoff, but remained to pray. When he finally submitted his article in March 1st of 1941 in the Saturday Evening Post, it was met with incredible outpouring. The lead picture on the article shows an alcoholic so shaky he can't get the glass up to his mouth for the first drink. He's winching it up with a bar towel. And that picture of despair, when alcoholics across the United States saw that in, in the Saturday Evening Post, they knew exactly what that article was about. There was no doubt whatsoever. And it let, let it be known that Alcoholics Anonymous was a solution for alcoholism. Jack Alexander is also important to our history because he served as a non-alcoholic trustee uh, for us and gave his time freely. 
1949, we had this huge revelation. The message of Alcoholics Anonymous could be carried in the, in the funny papers, the comics. There was a comic strip called Wash Tubs. It was a precursor to Captain Easy and Buzz Sawyer. But this guy named Leslie Turner, he ran these three-panel comic strips in nationally syndicated newspapers right alongside Beetle Bailey, Dagwood and Blondie, and all of those. And it started off with a drunk hitting bottom, getting 12th step by two AA members, getting a sponsor, working the steps. And then as the, as it closed out, because these were daily uh, runs of these three panel cartoons, as it closed out, the man was sober and was actually being able to have access to his little daughter that had been forbidden to see due to his alcoholism. So we found out the message could be carried through the funny papers as well. Now AA started to blossom and we, Dr. Bob had passed on and we started having general service conferences. Bill wanted Alcoholics Anonymous to outlive him and Dr. Bob. And so we started having these international general service conferences where he turned the reins over to AA. Now, as things started to evolve, we had three sets of 12. The first set of 12 was the steps. The first step was the problem. The second step was the solution. Steps three through 11 were the actions taken. And the 12th step was the fruit that it bears, a spiritual awakening. That's for the individual. Now we started to have the second set of 12s come about, the 12 traditions. The first tradition laid out the problem, maintaining unity. The second tradition was the solution. God has expressed himself in our group conscience. Now here's where it changes up. Curveball time. Traditions three through 11 are non-actions, the things that we do not do. And the reason why is because of their negative impact on unity. Unity above all, and the non-actions keep us from disrupting unity. Ship requirements, not allowing for autonomy with the group level, diverting from our primary purpose, lending our name to outside institutions, taking money from outside sources. If you take money, you have to pay the piper to the doom to that tune, et cetera, et cetera. The 12th tradition is the fruit that it bears, a type of spiritual anonymity where who we are doesn't matter. It's what we do. And then we got the third set of 12s, which are the concepts. And basically what they're about is <clears throat> on the collective worldwide A experience, how we express ourselves to each other, how to communicate at the service level. One's the problem, how to express. Two's the solution, the general service conference. And then traditions three through 11 are the, the communications that we involve, the interactions, and the fruit that it bears is the warranties. We also started publishing pamphlets and we've got, uh, we reproduced the Jack Alexander article. Then we had this big awakening and bear with me because we're starting to head down the home stretch. I know it's been a long, a long haul here, but bear with me, okay? This is important. We had this revelation that drunks were dying worldwide that did not read and speak English. Duh. What are we going to do for them? 
Well, GSO took on the job of translating the big book into foreign languages. And it was a tremendous historical event that we started publishing the big book for non-English speakers or readers to have access to our life-saving program of recovery. Now, when the one millionth big book was printed, Dr. Jack Norris, who was the chairman of the board for GSO, went to the then president, Richard Milhouse Nixon, and presented him with a complimentary uh, one millionth big book that it was ever printed. Now this, I don't know for fact, but I'm pretty sure of it. You see, he's got the book open and I think he directed him to the page where it says it demands rigorous honesty. I'm not really sure, but that was Nixon. Marty Mann is important in AA history because she broke through the glass ceiling. There was a double standard that men were alcoholics and women were immoral trollops that drank too much. And it was saddled with women that they were immoral and drunks were just good old boys that maybe had an allergy. And Marty Mann really made a place for women in Alcoholics Anonymous that was not subject to the discrimination about having to have some moral immoral scarlet letter of AA sewn on your, on your shirt that you were immoral because you're female and just alcoholic is male. She was tremendous about giving women their place in Alcoholics Anonymous. Harry Tebow was our first friend in psychiatry and he did a lot of work for us advocating with the psychiatric community, telling them ever so humbly, our job is just to keep the alcoholics together enough to get them to AA, okay? He did not advocate that psychiatry was the answer for alcoholism. It all started whenever one alcoholic, Ebby Thatcher, reached out to Bill Wilson. Bill Wilson, in turn, brought that message to Dr. Bob. And between the two of them and Sam Shoemaker and the Oxford Groupers, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous was hammered out. And when I say hammered out, it was not without some work. But we have to remember, recently, there was a pharmacist that got convicted for selling watered down drugs to terminally ill cancer patients. And it was an outrage. People were just absolutely outraged. How could someone do that? That's awful. They should throw up underneath the jailhouse. Watered down drugs to someone's terminally ill. But we have to ask ourselves the question, how many times have we done that as AA members by watering down the big book message? trying to make it a little bit more palatable and not giving full strength to AA to someone out of the textbook, Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's what holds us together and is the reason why we're still here is through our textbook. And to circle back to where we started, I tip my hat to you all for being students of the textbook and learning how to receive and pass along full, full strength sobriety of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Rick. That was a fabulous presenting. Ugh, I can't even speak. It was so good. Um, definitely have chills. 